Welcome back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. Just a reminder, this is a rewatch podcast, which means we've seen all the episodes of the show, and hopefully you have too, because we spoil early and often. If you have not yet finished the series finale, please, please, please press stop right now and come back once you've finished it. We don't want to spoil anything for you. The connections are all great, and you deserve to see it for yourself the first time. This is Beep, and we have for you today CC&I's conversation with Christopher Monfett, who co-wrote Nature. Enjoy! Chris, again, on recording. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is always such a pleasure to get to speak to not only just kind of a writer of the show, but about an episode that you did, um, because we know that it's very meaningful to you. So thank you for being here today. No, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. If you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit about how yeah. you how'd you come to be writing in television and then specifically to 12 Monkeys? Well, it was interesting because 12 Monkeys was my first job, actually. I mean, I knew, funnily enough, I knew uh, Terry and Travis from way, way, way back. I, uh, when I first moved out to Los Angeles, I was I was working for uh, Microsoft at the time doing public relations for their video games. And, um, I did that for a couple of years and then, you know, was writing on the side and trying to, you know, trying to sort of plant the seeds for what I hoped would eventually become all of this. And, um, at a certain point decided it was probably more fun to, to write about video games than, than sell them. <laughs> uh, and so I, I, I took a job at, um, a company called IGN. And so I was an entertainment journalist there for a bunch of years and I worked alongside Travis, and I knew Travis um, for, I mean, God, I've known Travis for probably 15 years now. And uh, Travis at the time and Terry were working on this pilot called Splinter um, that had sort of yet to become 12 Monkeys. And, and I remember reading the first draft of it and, you know, giving them some thoughts and notes and whatever, but really loving it. And then, uh, and then I remember, you know, just, you know, life happened and we all went on and continued with our projects and... Um, I actually moved out of LA. I, I moved back to New York um, uh, to to where I, uh, you know, got engaged with my to my current wife. Oh, congratulations! We were living there. Thank <laughs> a you. A little bit late. We were living there when my we were living there when my phone rang one day and Terry was like, "Hey, we got we got picked up. We got greenlit for Twelve Monkeys. I need you in the room next week." So, <laughs> um, you know, it was it, it 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 was a relationship planted kind of long ago that that came to fruition many years later and uh you know like a good time travel story and um and and that's kind of how it happened i mean i was at, i was on a plane a few days later and and in the in the room um writing season writing and breaking season one so uh it, it's you know i've said it before this really is a relationship business and and knowing knowing terry and knowing travis has been has been not only just like a, a rewarding friendship to have for this long it uh it, it got me started in, in what I'm doing today. So that's incredible. Yeah, I can't believe this was your first job. Yeah, yeah. Talk about talk about a hell of a first job, right? I mean, I had written I had written for features before that, so I had been lucky enough to. Um, Clive Barker, the horror author, was one of my mentors uh, early on, and so I had worked with Clive on adaptations of two of his short stories. And then um, Clive introduced me to Stephen King. And I had optioned and uh, written a Stephen King story as a feature. And none of those got made. But um, I'd been working in the feature space for, for quite some time. Uh, but this was my first sort of official TV gig, you know, where the 
weekly paycheck came off of words that you typed on a page. <laughs> and, um, and it's been, I mean, it. I, I'm not, I can imagine that many of us will be spending the majority of our careers trying to chase you know, this first experience in a lot of ways. So mm, shows your audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're so excited you're joining us for this episode today. We're going to be talking about yes, 307 yes. Nurture. Um, so this is one of those story by Adam Sussman, teleplay by Adam Sussman, Christopher Monfat. Can you <laughs> translate that for um, layman's? In layman's terms for us, what does that mean? Like, it, yeah, just what does that mean whenever we see story and versus teleplay by? Um, the sort of the 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 truth of television writing is that uh, a lot of times, um, you know, writers write on episodes that they're not credited on all the time. You know, I mean, it's a team, it's a team effort, and so. You know, at the end of the day, what happens is you'll get assigned a certain script and then you'll write that script and then other people will come in and, and contribute pieces and you'll contribute pieces to their episodes. And so Adam was an incredible writer that we we had on the show for a season. And, uh, you know, he spent some time sort of uh, thinking about this episode and researching a little bit of the history and um, starting to, to type away. And then, you know, I came in and we, we worked together and then I was, you know, the producer on the episode. So I was on set and kind of nurturing it, uh, so to speak, uh, into fruition. And so it was a great, uh, fun collaboration and it was great to then sort of take that script and, and, you know, work with Terry and, and run with it. So, um, this one is very personal, uh, you know, to myself having, having sort of taken that, that final, that final pass and taken it, um, through the finish line that uh, there's a lot of me in this episode. So I'm, I'm very proud. And I think Adam did a great job as well, sort of teeing everything up and, um, and yeah, that, that's kind of the short answer. Awesome. Um, such a treat to get to talk to you about it. So it was oh, directed you. by Stephen Adelson, yes, I who him. also directed Lullaby. Yes. Um, and there's actually, we'll get to it, but there's a scene at the end of this with Hannah and Jones that reminds me of Lullaby. Um, <laughs> but you rewatched the episode yesterday. I did, yeah. Any big picture thoughts um, going back and, and rewatching this episode after some time has passed? I mean, honestly, my feeling, my, the, the feeling I was feeling while I was watching it was really just a sense of kind of overwhelming pride in everybody who contributed to this. I mean, it was, this was not an easy episode. Not only was there sort of big action uh, set pieces in it, it, it's also a very, uh, you know, dramatic and emotional episode. I mean, it's a little bit of kind of everything that 12 Monkeys does very well. I mean, half the episode is this big emotional story between Cole and Cassie and then Cassie's mother, obviously. And then the other half is this big sort of manhunt for, for, for Ethan and, you know, cor you know, culminating in this giant siege of the house. And uh, I was just sort of awestruck by how well everybody performed it and how well Steven directed it and, and just kind of how, terrifically all those elements uh come together you know i mean it it's it, it it's like you've got two very different movies uh happening at the same time and somehow um everybody made it work in such a way that they kind of work you know and come together harmoniously and so i i and this that's true for for many many episodes but especially watching this one you know it brought back a lot of really great memories and and just reminded me how freaking good art can i curse on this is this fun oh yeah uh, 
just how amazingly good our, uh, our our cast and crew are. I mean, man, this this one really sings. Yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. you're looking at two different sides, not even different sides, but like you said, the kind of uh, two different plot ones. But everything in this entire episode is dialed up to eleven. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. From beginning to end, it's just like emotion, action, like which, like you said, whichever um, kind of element you're looking at, it is intense <laughs> from beginning to end. A hundred percent. Yeah, it feels like like if this had been like a traditional twenty two episode show, this feels like the mid season finale. Yes, and it was. I mean, it really was kind of designed to feel that way. I mean, we 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 wanted we wanted a sense of um, what's the big turn in in this season, and if certainly not sort of a mid season finale, then if this were a movie, maybe like an end of act two moment, right, where you're 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 thrust into the end game of of what the season is, and so it was really designed and built to. Um, be that episode that gives the show a, a kick in the ass into what it is going to transform into next, you know, because we, we have, we've always done these great little bridge episodes that are sort of on the path towards something. And then every now and then you get to do these episodes where all those threads sort of culminate in one big, you know, uh, one big resounding note. Uh, and you get the sense that the show is about to transform into sort of its next stage. And that was, that was really what this was intended to be. Sometimes I think of this episode as like the team splinter breakup episode. <laughs> it's it's, it's yes. like the big betrayal, like how could you, particularly for Jones and for Deacon. <laughs> but one of the things we marvel at as we talk about the show is that even when you all have these, I mean, big betrayals, man, <laughs> big, big <laughs> conflict, you keep us emotionally invested in these relationships. Like there's, there's a point I think that at least on other shows that it's stretched to the, to kind of a breaking point. And then as the audience, you feel less invested and, and we are not that way at the end of season four, even though, you know, there's moments where I'm like, Oh my God, Cassie just shot Deacon. Right. (laughs) But like, but by the series finale, I'm going to be sobbing at her saying that he's a good man. So when you all are breaking the story and writing, is that something that you all are conscious of? Like, how far can we stretch these relationships? Like, how do you balance that conflict with keeping sort of that emotional investment? Well, it's it's ultimately a little bit about, um, you know, it's a little bit about trying to ask ourselves, you know, what what's the audience appetite for conflict? And, you know, you don't, you know, you don't want to ever take those characters to a point or prolong those conflicts to a point where the audience is sort of sitting there rolling their eyes being like, okay, come on, let's just, we want the family back together. And even though the audience may not necessarily know it at the time, you know, we as writers know that this is essentially a family show. I mean, we're telling the story of a kind of one family, both, you know, biological and found. And so, you know, we never wanted to be too cruel or take them too far apart that they couldn't come back together in a very satisfying way. And I think it's also a function of all the characters on this show, regardless of how their motivations may conflict and and regardless of how principled or passionately they may believe that I may even have to hunt down and kill this person that was once on team that was once on my team that was once a part of my family. They all respect each other in that act. They all respect the motivations of the other. I mean, I think Cassie and Cole never lose sight of why Jones is doing what she's doing. And I think Jones never doubts that Cassie and Cole may be doing what they're doing for a very good reason. It's just not her reason. And so even when they're in conflict, 
there there's a respect that we tried to maintain between those characters um and then also just try to kind of keep keep a pulse of how long can we get away with this before everybody has to 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 come back together and we need to give the audience those moments of reconciliation and and bonding and levity um you know because that's really the core of the show you have to love all of these people um and when this episode is over in a weird way, we want you to be rooting for both sides, you know, and and not just both sides of a fractured team splinter, but also, you know, you know, really considering uh, more in season four, you know, the message of the witness in the Red Forest and and whether that may have some legitimacy to it. So for us, it was really just about, you know, being true to the characters and even when they are in conflict, maintaining their level of respect for each other. You guys do a really good job, uh, I think, each and every time mapping out these conflicts in such a way where you can definitely choose a side, but I feel like the narrative doesn't. Sure, yeah. And it does that in such a way where you're like, oh man, yeah, I get it. I get why they're doing that. I get why they're doing this. I wish they would all just come together and love each other. But like, you understand <laughs> why they can't right now. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and that that was always very important to us. Right. Like you're throwing a pillow across the room, but you get it. <laughs> right. Um, so, Chris, if you have time, what we thought we would do is sure. kind of go s- big scene by big scene. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So this show kicks off with one of the great Jones monologues. <laughs> um, makes me want to like see Barbara Sakawa like do Shakespeare. Oh, my God. That was amazing. And this monologue particularly on rewatch um it, it not only captures this go back and kill baby hitler moral dilemma mm-hmm. of the moment in this episode but when you go back and rewatch it now that you've seen the end of this story and particularly the series finale where you have time winking um mm-hmm. right. and perhaps right and your interpretation uh judging Cole, you know, worthy to continue mm-hmm. existing. It's really it both captures like this particular moral dilemma, but then these larger themes. Right. And some of the lines, you know, time as Jones is God, the absolution of time, our sins define us. Um there are a lot of lines that just jumped out at me. So you, just any big picture thoughts. Did you did you write that this monologue? Yeah, yeah. I Terry um at a certain point in the show, I think Terry sort of looked at all the writers and sort of figured out quite kind of masterfully what our superpowers were. And, uh, you know, we each had several and we each kind of wrote elements of the show in a, in a particular way that, that Terry figured out how to bring together and harmonize. And so, uh, you know, for me, it was always if you need, you know, a, 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 a scene that's chock full of banter or you need the most philosophical fucking monologue uh, that you can find it's like go to Chris and so um, I you know a lot of a, a lot of the material that I gravitated toward in the show was was Jones and Jennifer um, so you know those were two characters that I often wrote for and Terry came to me uh, on this particular episode and said look Chris like I want to do something that that TV doesn't really do and I, I want to do like a page or a page and a half monologue um, and I just want to, I, I just want to let Barbara be Barbara, you know, I want to let her do what she, what she does and just swing for the fences and, and give a performance. And like, so his task was Chris, win Barbara and Emmy go. And, um, <laughs> and I, I mean, I remember sitting in, in Toronto, you know, just struggling with this monologue about what it should be. And, 
Uh, and then this is eventually where we where we ended up because it felt like you needed to start from the premise of the team um, acknowledging the weight of what they were about to do, right? And and sort of the 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 fundamental, not just kill baby Hitler of it, but just you're killing a child. Period. And uh, and how do you give the pep talk for that? You know what I mean? Like, what's the? There is no locker room football coach style Friday Night Lights pep talk for let's go kill a kid. And um, and the only way that I thought that Jones could really approach that is to simultaneously speak to the, you know, uh, the the logic and the spirituality of these this motley group of people before her. So um, this was one of the most challenging monologues uh, in the show that I had the opportunity to write. But um, fortunately... I think I could have written it backwards and shuffled up the, the, the every word in the monologue until it made zero sense and Barbara would have delivered it beautifully. So, uh, you know, I think it, I think it, it became, I think one of the defining moments of the season. So she is incredible. So good, right? Just so good. So underrated. I mean, just absolutely. Like you said, she, I mean, she knocks this out of out of the park. And I believe you, she could have been reading a recipe and I would have sobbed. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think I think when people look back on this show, I mean, there's a, I think there's a lot of things they'll realize that they slept on. But um, I think that that Barbara is a an, an absolute like I could see one day taking home an Emmy statue, just masterclass of an actor and has has I think very little awareness of it. Um, she is so humble and so wonderful and just such a beautiful soul. Um, and 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 the working with her was such a was was such a privilege because you'd write these things and she'd perform these things and she would be like, eh, was that you know was that okay? And you'd be like, Barbara, I'm freaking crying. I'm like sitting here and you know and you've just hit a ball you know hit the ball out of the ballpark. So she's amazing in in this and every episode. So. Yeah, I mean, particularly when you look at sort of uh, the as the camera kind of pans around the table and you look at all of these, like, not only like the actors, but the, these characters, but it's a moment that you absolutely believe that everyone in that room is listening to Jones in rapt, like, rapt attention, right? right? She's commanding the room. Um, just to get a little bit more at this idea, you know, Jones, when she calls time her god and sort of the bigger themes of mm -hmm. when you all were in the writer's room, were you sort of consciously playing with this idea? Like, you know, you guys wrote from what I understand three and four together, mm -hmm. um, knowing sort of that end game that you're driving toward. How did you all talk about time in that way? Like, I mean, we kind of struggle with it. Sometimes we're like, is it kind of this, force it's not quite a character but i mean there's a there's some really interesting stuff in here thematically that you now can't help but think of sort of the end of the series yeah i mean i think that whether or not time was consciousness or or, or conscience um conscious sorry uh was i mean obviously a big portion of the show and that was something that we dealt with as far back as kind of season two um but for the purposes of this episode the conversation was really about um spirituality and morality as it relates to time and that in a world where our characters are acutely aware that yesterday and tomorrow and today for them don't necessarily come in the same order 
the question then becomes uh, about what what level of personal of personal responsibility do we bear for the things that we know we will do um, versus our, our our sort of ability to change that. So when Jones in this monologue says, for example, you know that time is a god who understands that I've already done that which I will one day do. Um, that question then becomes, how responsible am I for having done it uh, or will have having done it? Um, uh, tenses are a nightmare for time travelers. <laughs> Can't um, even imagine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and so that really was, was how we approached this particular, this particular beat in this particular scene was from the point of view of um, how do you reconcile your, your morality and your choices in a non-linear set of experiences. Um, and, uh, and, and how does in that, in that way, how does the idea of time mimic the idea of, of God, you know, and if, if the consequences of what you do, um, are either that you can change time or you can't change time, um, is that a judgment on your efforts to try? So, yeah, this was a complex one, you know, um, but it was it was less about beyond just the, the, the big, grandiose, abstract theme of this monologue. It really became more about how do the characters grapple with that question throughout the course of 60 minutes? Um, and that's kind of where we that's kind of where we ended up. The conversation was really it was less about uh, the spirituality of it and more about the sort of fundamental choice of you know look when when i can travel to the future and see that i'm about to do something um and in my experience i've already done it um is knowing that i will do it does that make me more complicit or less complicit so Mm, so interesting any of that makes sense no totally (laughs) absolutely something that's (laughs) fascinating to me about jones and that character in general is if you just wrote down the explanation, you know, of like who her character is on a character sheet, you would not expect <laughs> her to speak so much about the concepts of God and sin and forgiveness and morality as she does, mm-hmm. which I find fascinating. Um, I, that's interesting because I, I, I don't know. I don't know how much I agree with that because, um, you know, Jones, I think, is a very empirical, scientific and rational human being but i think at the core of everything in that character um i think there is a deep sense of right and wrong um but i think you know i i I think her personal motivations for everything that she does throughout the show which is not just which begins as as saving seven billion people and yes is then revealed to be really it's about saving hannah Mm -hmm. um and, and in a weird way saving herself um, she she just uses scientific justifications to get around what I think is actually a very deep morality and a very deep spirituality. I mean, she reveals herself to be incredibly philosophical throughout the show. Oh, 100%. I, I literally mean she's not that stock character that you might expect her to be. Oh, like the woman of science. Exactly, exactly. to faith. Yeah, no, yeah. it's it's an absolute, like, yeah. it's a compliment, not a, <laughs> you know, just if you yeah, just said, yeah. like, oh, it's the scientist who does time travel, like, you don't expect right. the depth and the layers and just the absolute, like, totality of a human being that Jones is. She could have been a cardboard cutout. Right, exactly. Oh, for sure. Um, but I, I guess it's just to say that I think even from sort of minute one, 
underneath her being such a scientist, I think she does have a very deep sense of morality and, and in some ways spirituality. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, that, that reveals itself throughout the show. And so, uh, you know, to, to, that we get to monologues like this never felt out of character for that. Oh, absolutely person. not. Yeah. The other line that um, struck me, because it's one of those that's um, not only for the characters and kind of the theme of redemption, um, is our sins define us. Mm-hmm. And redemption is such a huge part of this story. Like, even as you're looking at all of those characters around the table from Deacon to Cole, um, that at first it, it makes it makes you almost bristle a little bit. Like, no, we're not defined by our sins. But even if it is a redemption story, that redemption has its seed, right, in the sin that you're being redeemed from. Right. For sure, yeah. The idea of atonement as well. Yeah. So... As we're listening to this wonderful monologue, you all are going back and forth between that room, and then we see Ethan drawing. Yes. And watching this back-to-back with nature, um, it's interesting how you all were almost in coal shoes in terms of how we – well, in in nature, we were very much in Cole's point of view of this horror of a little boy putting that mask on. Mm-hmm. And and draw and killing everyone, and so it puts you very much in that headspace of, oh my god, maybe they do have to kill him, right? right. Like at the end of that episode, and then you guys <laughs> immediately are like, yeah, but he's a little boy drawing, and we're going to make you feel really, really badly about it. Right. <laughs> so how did you all? I mean, obviously, like at this point, we've spent two and a half seasons talking about the witness. Mm-hmm. At this point, we think that's Ethan. It's also the son of the two lead characters, right, that we are so invested in. How did you all approach introducing him? Um, Well, I mean, I think it was about, it means exactly what you said, right, which is to introduce him as, you know, kind of Damien Omen in the nature sort of part of this, uh, in a weird kind of quasi-two-parter. That if if part one is really about questioning um, if whether the, the the nature of something is inherent to that thing and whether it can be changed or uh, affected or amended um, and their perception of Ethan being, uh, you know, the, the witness, the, the villain of the series. And then and then from their point of view, seeing this kid do this terrible thing um it cements to them the sense that this is just his his nature as a person. Um, but then what we want to tell to the audience as our characters grapple with that question in the beginning of Nurture is this suggestion um, that this child is still pliable, right? That he is still a child, that he is still like in the pursuit of childish things. Um, and, that, uh, uh, and that can... This thing that you thought was nature, maybe it is nurture here, right? So from minute one of the episode, we want you to be thinking, oh, oh, this child seems like a normal child and almost a sweet boy. And, uh, you know, can he be nurtured um, to be something different? Because by the time you get to that final moment uh, in the episode, um, you, you want the audience to be with Cassie and Cole in thinking this is not the way to do this. Um, and maybe we, maybe this is one of the places in this 
crazy fucked up time travel journey that we can affect change. Um, and, and we as parents have to embrace nurture rather than nature. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, it, it was inherent to the theme. It was just, you know, let's make, let's make the characters think one thing, uh, in nature and then let's inform the audience, um, for a minute, let them be a little bit ahead of, uh, of our guys, uh, in, in nurture. Um, and then let, let's let our people discover, uh, who Ethan may or may not be, um, as a result of that and as a result of Cassie's interaction with her mom later in the episode. Yeah. The, it's interesting. Cause you said the saving someone and in the next scene where we see Cassie and Cole talking and Cole says, the only time we've ever made a difference is when we've gone in together. It made me think of early in season two, when he was arguing, the only time we've made a difference is when we've saved someone. Mm-hmm. And that is actually a thread that runs throughout the whole show mm-hmm. um this like shoot you know killing one for seven billion is this own it's this like morality loop that the characters are constantly on right whether right. it's killing ethan or in early season four when cassie's like we have to kill olivia um but what seems to make the difference is uh saving jennifer on the rooftop which jennifer talks about in this episode right. or or saving ethan because then ethan saves them right and is that is that just sort of – because even though you all are really, like, getting the audience in some really dark moral areas, it, it is also hopeful because the things that make a difference are hopeful choices of saving someone. And is that just something organically that happened as you were writing the story or – Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's also a little bit in part of just our uh, – collectively, um, our, our, our worldview. Um, you know, I think that this is – for all of the drama and darkness in the show, um, it's it's not particularly cynical. Um, and I think it is a very hopeful, at its core, a very hopeful show. Um, and so a lot of that was, I think, just reflective of what our appetites are in terms of, um, you know, in terms of these characters who've been tasked with this incredible mission uh, from the get-go of... Uh, one versus seven billion and having to save seven billion and kind of knowing that we were going to get to where we were going to get in season four um, with uh, with what we discover in in, in one minute more um, that uh, that that what we we were very conscious about wanting to establish a pattern of these are characters who are on a mission and have who come to understand over the course of their mission that saving tends to be the most effective way um, that that mercy and grace and uh, leaning to, leaning toward empathy and leading toward um, helping right uh, rather than the destructive possibilities of time travel are probably the way to move the ball forward knowing that we're gonna get these characters then to have to make the ultimate antithesis of that decision which is I'm gonna have to drop this vial and kill and actually kill 7 billion people. It's no longer about one. It's about 7 billion. Um, and so, you know, we wanted to, uh, it's kind of like the one-two punch, right, of the audience of, of, of set you up on a pattern of these people are going to be uh, agents of good and agents of, uh, uh, of, of, of all the things that I just listed in the interest of saving, you know, this person and then this person and then this person. And then finally, once you think, Okay, great. They're going to save the day yet again. They're faced with the worst and most horrible decision um, that they're going to have to make. And then they have to do it. Um, so it was all kind of part and parcel of just, yes, this is who we are as writers and these are our preferences. 
we don't want to create a show that makes anybody feel oogie at the end of the day. But also knowing that we're we want that gut punch that we're going to give you in season four to hit even harder. Um, so you know, if we establish a pattern and then break it, uh, the audience is going to be very super affected by that later on. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I mean, there's a lot of. Um Man, there's a lot of nihilism out there in what we're consuming right now, and there really so is. Uh, yeah, and 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 uh, you know, uh, it's particularly it was easier to watch it maybe eight years ago than it is now. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, I think that ultimately that hopeful message, I think is, I think it's part of the reason why the audience, you know, is still talking about the show a year later, um, because it filled. I know at least it did for me, like. I, I got to the end of that series finale and I just felt like I really needed a win. <laughs> you guys <laughs> like, um, so I think, you know, I, obviously it's what you all had in mind, but I think it's one of the reasons why it like continues to resonate um, because it doesn't, it doesn't shrink from really, really gray, difficult moral dilemmas, but it, but it also has that sort of hopeful piece right. to it. Exactly. At the end. And like, what good is a roller coaster that only goes down? Right. You know, so, uh, you know, it, it, it's 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 fun to crest the hill and then go down into the depths of despair. But the joy of a roller coaster is that awesome sweeping feeling you get on the uptick. And so um, and then the repetition of that pattern. And, and we just weren't interested in making a show that always that just made you feel like shit every week. You know, we wanted we wanted the audience to to have a back and forth and we wanted people to have real points of view. But we also wanted them to enjoy the show you know and come away feeling you know uh, if you know if not good then certainly emotionally moved and potentially inspired to do good um you know by by some line or some expression or to think about something positive at the end of most episodes you know we're, we were not a group of negative people looking to um talk about all the ways in which time travel could point out uh, a lack of humanity. We wanted to to show how it could, you know, um, magnify the humanity that we have. So that's a which is a spin on the movie as well, because the yeah, original right. story is based on, and even the movie is pretty hopeless in that particular sense of like, eh, you can't really change yeah. anything. Here we are watching our deaths. What a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. How so the, the Cassie and Cole scene, yeah. um, and when we were talking about even the last episode, Nature, you all set up this divide between Cassie and Cole, and yet always maintain that there is an emotional connection. And right. and as we were thinking about other, I don't know, like a lot of other shows, we could see making very different choices. Mm-hmm. With those two characters, and sort of the emotional headspace they were both in and sort of at least in this episode i mean obviously you have them all coming together to be on the same side but you know a scene like at the top of the episode where they are disagreeing over whether their son should be killed Mm -hmm. and yet you as the audience member you're never questioning that there is still like emotional connection there right and so is that did you all sort of like, how did you all approach that? Because it's a really big divide. And you but you keep that sort of that connective tissue between the two of them, even though they're having like one of the most fundamental disagreements you, two people could possibly have. Right. And I, I, I think that's um, I think that's accurate. But at the same time, there's enough doubt on either side of the equation that it's not um, 
it's not a, a, a what's the word like a concrete disagreement. Mm-hmm. Nobody has planted their flag firmly in any one position. They're leaning to a particular side. Um, it's why Cassie lets him go. You know, um, she disagrees with him, um, but she doesn't know, and neither does. Cole really and it's why he goes but he goes with a great deal of doubt um and and so uh it's and, and it's kind of what we love about these characters is that they do disagree and they do uh often go down alter you know uh, alternate if not competing paths but they love each other and they trust each other to 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 always understand that maybe the other one is right um for the most part at least in these last couple of seasons that even at their most heated disagreement there's always a mutual respect in that love that they have for each other um that gives them the pause to go maybe cole's right or maybe cassie's right um and to be open-minded that when they get to the point in the story where the an alternate argument is made in a way that they can hear it, they can accept it and then change their behavior based on it. Um, and I think that that's, that's really the function of us wanting to create a functioning couple. Um, you know, we, we didn't want to, you know, we put you through the ringer a little bit for a season and a half or will they, won't they. But at a certain point, once you've answered that question, now your options are, Okay, do we continue to break them up and get them back together and break them up and get them back together? Or do we treat this couple like a real couple that respects each other and loves each other but is going to disagree? Um, and part of that is not disagreeing 100%. Part of that is disagreeing enough to, to know I love this person and I trust this person. And if they believe they're right, maybe I'm wrong. Um, and I have to be open to the possibility of that. And so that when Cassie goes and sees her mother later... And her mother frames the argument in a way that Cassie's able to hear it. She changes her mind. And when Jennifer frames the argument in a way that Cole is able to hear it, he's open to changing his mind when he, when he finally gets to the end of the episode and sees Ethan. So um, I don't know. We always thought it as as kind of actually an expression of of how of how great and functional and meaningful their relationship was to each other. Yeah, I guess we're just not used to watching functional relationships <laughs> <laughs> on I know, TV. Right? <laughs> So true. Well, you know, like I mean, you're just, just describing that, and I'm like fist pumping because <laughs> it's rare. It's like this show in Friday Night Lights. I swear. Yeah, you know, <laughs> so. it's it's look, it's 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 a challenge of. I mean, I don't know how to say this, but it it's. I'm trying to say this humbly. Um, it's easy to break people up. You know what I mean? It's it's easy to put people through manufactured conflict and it's the it's low-hanging dramatic fruit yeah it's um, lazy to too. ask right to ask well okay that's you you said it we, in a way you that we I can say it. oh say i can it. say it but, i feel fine you know <laughs> it's lazy <laughs> um there's a there's you know look for a lot of audiences and a lot of shows there's a lot of drama to be mined out of just the will they won't they and you know writers and audiences are sometimes if not often happy to just play that out um, because it, it gives you a quick fix of of conflict. But that's not what we really wanted to do. We wanted to challenge, challenge ourselves to really create a couple and let them be together and let them be together in a way where they face the challenges, albeit, you know, magnified by time travel and genre, that most people deal with. 
um, and to give them the benefit of the doubt that, that they can overcome those things. So, um, so yeah, so. Yeah, it's, there's, a, there's some really great little, uh, and I don't know if it was, ne- it was intentional or not, but the whole world, we'll get to Cassie and her mother, but what she's describing to Cole in this moment mm-hmm. is regret. Yep. For letting a moment that you couldn't possibly have known would ha- carry the significance that it would, right? The last chance to have spent time with her mother before she died. Right. And as I was rewatching that scene, I couldn't help but think of, you know, happily ever now. And mm-hmm. this idea of, you know, the ultimately, like the last image and the last words were left within the show that's perhaps one of the most inspiring things you take with you as an audience member, mm-hmm. right? Is to seize that now. Um, and, you know, there's also just like, we don't get to change the past and keep the future. And Cassie questioning, will things be better? Um, is right. another one of those, oh, you guys are really setting up that, <laughs> that late <laughs> act with Cassie. Um, so, are, so we're sort of weaving in those moments or just sort of like the themes that you all were playing with along the way. Yeah, I mean, those look, these are universal themes to the show. Um, and, and, you know, we don't, we don't get to, to change the past and, and keep the future is a line that is a line, if not a sentiment that comes back, certainly in, in season four in a big way. Um, and all of this was in service to posing minor versions of a major choice that we knew we were going to get them to in season four, right? That, that. The, the the elephant in the room that our characters are, are, are consistently dancing around, well, Cassie and Cole specifically, are consistently dancing around is the sense of, um, look, at the end of the day, if we win, we lose each other. Um, and nobody really wants to sit down and say that out loud. And finally, she says it here and then continues to reiterate it later. Um, but they do that in the context of... of um, going on an adventure to save the thing that they made together. Um, and, and then it's, it's reiterated in different contexts later. So it's absolutely intentional. It's absolutely thematic. Um, and it's, it's, it's us trying to build the audience and, and put this question and keep this question front and center in the audience's mind so that you're constantly asking yourself, okay, do I really want them to win though? Like, (laughs) Like, do I, really, do I really want them to succeed? <laughs> yeah. Be- because because if they succeed, that means casserole doesn't, you know, th- th- this thing that I love and this thing that I've been rooting for can't exist. So where do I fall in the spectrum of rooting for the good guys, you know? And, yeah, they and- can exist, but also every relationship is unraveled. Exactly. Yeah. 100%. Everything we've been invested in, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have us, you know, having to like go grab more alcohol in the series finale right. because Cole has to be deleted, right? But I think the <laughs> I think the interesting thing about that is is when you ask yourself that question for almost everybody else in the show, if 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 our characters are successful uh and and everything kind of resets and everything goes back, the thing that I think the the the, the series finale shows you that I think maybe the audience has had would have had in mind in some way is everybody gets a happy ending except our main characters without each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, yeah, you can sit there and go, okay, if, if they reset, we don't get these wonderful relationships um, and these characters may never meet each other, but Jones will have Hannah and uh, you know, and, and Deacon will never be a West seven and he will have his brother and, and, and all of these pieces will actually kind of work out pretty well for most of these characters. 
But you have this fundamental dread in the back of your head that, yeah, but Cassie will be alone and Cole won't exist. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, that that's that's the that's the drive of the show. That's that we want the audience to actually be asking themselves, like, wait, who am I rooting for? And do I really want the person that I'm rooting for to get what they want? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's right. clearly intentional. And you've got Cassie saying, somehow I'll still know. Yeah. Um, and here she's talking about, like, a, a she'll still know a terrible thing with mm-hmm. respect to her son. But now you're kind of like, right, she she's onto something there, right? right? And she's right, too, because season four will right. bear out that somehow she does still remember and does still know. Such foreshadowing. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> I know. We love foreshadowing. Especially so of things we think are bad that turn out to be good. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best kind. Um, so if we this uh, this episode is uh, until the very end feels like a real I think it's, it goes to a line Deacon, Deacon says, you don't really know, you know, until you hit bottom. Right. That's when you find out something. And, and that's what this feels like, at least when I was watching for Cole. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when he, we go to 1953 and they're at Raritan and Jennifer is like, she is adorable in her 1950s outfit. Um, but they're having that conversation and Cole is saying things like, I just want it to be over. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be that all I wanted was forgiveness. Now I just want it to end. It mm-hmm. like pin- pinches your heart. Right. Um, and so can you talk to us a little bit about um, where this mo- where these moments kind of fit in with Cole's longer series arc? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we kind of wanted this to be, I mean, you said, I mean, the, the show, and then I think you pointed out, I mean, we wanted this to be Cole's rock bottom, right? We wanted this to be Cole kind of not only frustrated with the constant back and forth and give and take and, and step forward and a step back of, of of this quest in general, but then to now say, God, to get what I want, I have to put a bullet in, in, in this thing that I made, right? In this thing that I had a role in, in creating. So... You know, if it's one for seven billion, I've now just learned that the one exists because of me um, and and the guilt and despair that I have, not only in having had a hand in creating the problem, but then the incredible weight of what solving that problem means, which is that I'm going to have to murder my own child. After you murdered your brother for attempting to do the same thing, essentially. Right. I mean, Cole's at rock bottom and he needs he needs at this point. Um, a, 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 an incredible uh, symbol of hope that even Cassie um, is unable to show him. And that hope comes in the form of, of this child and, and the innocence that he later sees in his eyes. Um, but, you know, like you said, like I said earlier, it's like, you, you know, you don't want a roller coaster that only goes down. And so we want to take you to the bottom of the trough in this episode but then the minute that Cole looks in that boy's eyes, start to swing you back up and start to say, no, 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 nope, we're not doing this. There's there's another way. Um, and, uh, and yeah. And so it's all it's all just in service of we want to get Cole to his weakest, lowest, most despondent moment. And then um, to, to the to the moment that not even his friends or or his or his loved one can pull him out of um, and and have it be this connection with this complete stranger. Um, that's the thing that ultimately saves him. The cool thing is, even though, you know, Cole now says, or Cassie are both saying there's another way, as the audience, we don't know that. 
you know? So we're still set up of like, okay, they're trying something different, but is someone on Team Splinter still going to go through with this plan? Obviously not this Mm -hmm. evening because things went sideways, but, you know, is Ethan going to end up dead, you know, in in the um, Mm -hmm. kind of in pursuit of this mission. So just because Cole wasn't able to do it doesn't mean, you know, we're out of the woods, which just still kind of right. like throws another spin on it. And he will, just not for the reasons that we, <laughs> right? I mean, we're as the audience, we're still going to have to pay that emotional toll of losing right. Ethan and watching Cassie and Cole lose their son. It's just not for the right. reasons we possibly could imagine <laughs> right. at this point. <laughs> You guys are so mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's a great there's a great saying about drama, right? It's like give the audience what they want, but not the way they wanted it. And you know, that's that's kind of what we try to do on this show is um, how do we how do we keep our promises, but in a way that uh, asks more questions and make new ones. So. Right. Um, one it, it, one of the sort of seeds that helps Cole get to that moment um, that you were just talking about with his son is his conversation with Jennifer, Mm -hmm. where she's the one. And she, we talk a lot on the pod about sort of the Cole and Jennifer mentorship loop. Um, And sometimes it's, you know, uh, literally quoting lines back to each other with an older self or a younger self. But (laughs) but this is, you know, Jennifer and Cole in a moment together. And Jennifer, you know, she sees – that her friends at rock bottom and she's recalling at the beginning of season two, when she was standing on a rooftop about to drop the virus on the world and Cole talked her into, you know, whether believing in herself or making a more hopeful choice. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, talk to us a little bit about this friendship and, and grounding sort of where you're going to take us by the end of the episode in a conversation that takes place between Jennifer and Cole. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think this Jennifer and Cole's relationship to me is just, I mean, it's, it's in, in I mean, everything feels like the heart of the show sometimes, you know, but their, their friendship is, I think, so deep and so special and so meaningful. And it's this perfect, you know, ping pong match between pragmatism and, and, you know, I don't want to say insanity because she's not particularly truly crazy but um it it's it's they're constantly in a position to teach each other and um and this scene and and this aspect of the episode is actually a great example of how uh of how of just the process of discovery in writing you know because the images at the beginning of the episode when we first started writing this of that Ethan was drawing of Cole with the gun on him um were you know, we, we originally were, were talking about, you know, we're struggling to find what what's the thing that he could be drawing. And then we we were writing this conversation and, you know, I, I don't quite know where it came from. I think it was just you reach the point in the conversation where she has to say something to Cole that will get Cole to that Cole can then see later. And then in talking with with Terry and, and I think Sean and, and, a, and a couple other folks, it became about. Okay, well, you know, what can Cole see? And then it just became about lines of sight. It became about, you know, the eyes of a child and said, and then one of us said, well, you know, Jennifer can say, this is why I call you otter eyes, because I understand the value of of looking someone in their eyes. And then it became about, well, if Cole is going to look his boy in the eye in that moment, what is his boy seeing? 
And then that became the drawing at the front of the episode. So it was this great realization that came to us mid script, really, um, that tied that put a bow on the entire episode in a super meaningful way. Um, but I think it's a function of Jennifer, Jennifer's constant ability to instinctively read people in situations. You know what I mean? Like she, she's got herself these sort of wild eyes and she knows that, um, she knows how effectively people can lie, but, uh, uh, she knows, you know, she has this ability to sort of look at them and size them up and, and, and get a fairly accurate sense of who they are and that she's able to then tell, you know, tell that to Cole, um, kind of gives Cole his destination for the episode. So, yeah. I mean, also there's some, you know, as you were talking, there's, you know, obviously world, this episode begins to sort of explore that special connection that Ethan and Jennifer have. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, you know, watching Ethan as a little boy drawing, you can't help but think of what we know of Jennifer's childhood, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, and, and the burden that, that, that this kind of superpower you know, but with a child drawing these images, right? Like Ethan is drawing his father pointing a gun, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and some of the images are horrifying and it's a child drawing. And so you feel this empathy for him that I think, at least for me, is also tied up because of what we've known about Jennifer and mm-hmm. her childhood. Um, yeah. Um, if we can go to um, shift back to... Um, I guess we're in 2046, right? Yep. Um, with Deacon. Stop <laughs> <laughs> first. All right. So with Deacon and Jones. And Deacon, ever the keen observer um, <laughs> of human behavior, he knows something is, and he's been saying for a couple episodes now, something's up, goes to see Jones. And there's a line that he says that's so true, like in real life, but also seems like a phenomenal rule for like great TV. <laughs> you want to bring people together, put them through hell. You want to tear them apart, give them a secret. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels really meta because of what <laughs> you guys are doing in this episode. Um, right. But so talk to us sort of about um, this. We're just coming off an episode where Deacon is sort of struggling with not being on the word of the witness, not being in any of these drawings. I'm not a red shirt. And then coming right off of that, this feels like the worst possible thing that could happen on top of that is this betrayal. Um, so, so, And it kind of sets us up to wonder where Deacon's headed, which you guys are going to have a lot of fun with in season four. So, um, <laughs> And you wrote some really key scenes, I think, speaking to nurture nature with Deacon in Enemy. Um, mm-hmm. So just talk to us sort of about where we're at and what you were – like hoping to accomplish in this episode with Deacon's arc. Um, well, I think the, especially the season three of it, uh, and honestly, it's quite into season four is um, creating an episode, creating an arc in which Deacon is looking for a purpose. He's actually kind of not the metaphor. I guess we would use is like we always wanted Deacon to be a coin spinning on a table, and you were never quite sure whether he was going to fall heads or tails because he wasn't quite sure where he was going to fall. Um, and so you've got Deacon coming off of this uh, question he has about his role in things. And that I think in a way is what makes him such a keen observer of everybody because he's looking, he's searching Um, not just like inwardly, but he's searching outwardly for, okay, what's, what am I doing here? What's the point of me? Um, And so his eyes are wide open and he's asking questions in a way that, uh, you know, a lot of our characters aren't. 
Um, and so it puts him in a position to kind of see all of these things and put all of these pieces together and ask some questions that um, if, if that hopefully the audience has been kind of asking a little bit. Um, and then, you know, as somebody who I think who has manipulated people for good and bad throughout his life for him to, to sort of have this, this observation that he makes about secrets and, and how to pull people or tear them apart. Um, he's just kind of using his own life experience and his own, um, his own experience with, with uh, manipulating people um, and, and putting that to use here. Um, and then, you know, that, that obviously is something that, you know, he will, he will come down on a side at the end of this episode um, that will continue to carry us through half of episode four um, because it's kind of shocking when you think about it, right? Like from Deacon's point of view, how this episode, if you take this episode, the end of this episode through to him revealing himself as an ally at the end of I'm trying to remember here after, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with the wink kind of, mm-hmm. and then, you'll get kind of the full reveal of that in Nazi Nazi France, Nazi occupied France. Mm-hmm. Um, that to him, he's that's actually a 10 episode piece for him in a way, right? Because Cole and Cassie go off and now he's hunting them because he's kind of planted a flag, but then finds them again. And then in the momentum of finding them again, everything in the finale of season three happens. And then we're thrust into the beginning of season Four, which is still just a direct continuation from the end of three. And then a roof falls on top of his head. And now all of a sudden he wakes up in Titan and he's got a game to play um, that takes three or four additional episodes to play out. So, you know, this Cassie and Cole leaving at the end of this episode actually thrusts Deacon on like a 10 episode arc, you know, which is incredible. Yeah. Right. And it's, now that you lay that all out, like he's, he will have barely seen them. Yes. You know, until he and Cole are sitting in, um, you know, and, and he's being tortured, right. um, in Deglaca. Like he's barely even, yeah, like he doesn't really have, he's, in other words, he's in his own head a lot, mm-hmm. um, without the opportunity to hash this out with the two people right. that betray him in this yeah. episode. I mean, Cassie shoots him like after he saved her. It's rough. I mean, um, Deacon's monologue is an inner monologue, man. I mean, and we kind of literally play around with that in, in enemy, but, um, Deacon doesn't have the luxury of having long introspective conversations with our characters. Um, this is a man who's the clockwork is constantly turning in his head uh, and and the minute that he kind of comes aboard the team um, and we start to play out this story that will, uh, you know, kind of coalesce in, in midway through season four, um, this is a guy who's keeping his cards super close to his vest. And uh, you have no idea how that's going to play out, you know, or who he really will side with. So. Right. Um, in this scene, Jones talks about um, Dr. Jameson, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, which I think is now how I'm going to refer to Jameson from now on. <laughs> good, good. Um, <laughs> but is that is she talking about what we will see? You know, she says, I, I woke up with a raging hangover 100%. and I finally. It's 100% what happens in Ouroboros, right? Uh, 100%. She's, she's, okay. she's referencing Ouroboros. We, Got it. We knew in season three what we were going to do in season four. We'd broken that. We'd kind of broken that far. 
Um, and so, you know, we just, we told her, you know, just hit that word hallucinations a little hard, you know, like hit it twice. Uh, we want the audience to wonder, wait, what is she remembering? Cause this is more than something, but not quite a thing yet. Um, and then, uh, yeah. And then and look, it's just, we, we had so much fun just putting these little kernels and then paying them off later. Um, and this is just one tiny thing, but we were like on the day, we we're just kind of giddy and laughing because we were like, the audience is going to totally, it's going to take a year for them to get the answer to this question. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes have wondered if you guys were giddy at these clues because we are now like screaming about them as we rewatch them. But. Oh my God. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were so, you know, it just, you, you, you plant these things and then you're just like, you just want to instantly go to Twitter and see the audience being like, Oh shit, that's what that was. And, uh, and, and, <laughs> right. and look, I mean, the, 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 the funny thing about Doctor Who kind of taught me this in, in some ways. I don't know if you guys are, are Doctor Who fans, but um, the, the way to make yourself look like there, the, the ways to make yourself look like a genius when you're writing a time travel show are actually fundamentally easy to do if you just know where you're going. You know what I mean? Like, you know, for the audience... Joan says a little thing, you ask a question, a year later that episode airs, and you go, oh, that's what Jones was talking about. And to you, it's been a huge emotional journey of investment and characters and multiple episodes and arcs completing and ending and beginning. And to us, it's like 10 minutes in the room, knowing like, <laughs> okay, yeah, well, we know where we're going in four, so we should have Jones say a thing in seven here and it makes such perfect sense and you kind of throw it in there as just something that's going to be fun. And then you look like a genius when the episode airs. So um, <laughs> it's just about, you know, think ahead and plan. And then you, you just, you, you, you build backward. Um, and that's a lot of what we, what we did in the room was just put the bones down of what you wanted. And then, and then rather than breaking story forward, break it in both directions at the same time. Yeah, but not a lot, so not everybody funny. does that. Not everybody does that, man. <laughs> That's when we get grumpy when we get to the end of a story and you feel like, wow, did they not know where they were going? <laughs> well, so, you know, a lot of times, yeah. no, they don't. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if we can shift to yeah. Cassie and Jones. Um, and Jones kind of puts it best later <laughs> in the episode when she says, let's talk mother to mother. Um, because there's a lot of... You know, even though they're obviously going to come to a huge conflict with Jones ordering them to shoot and kill Cassie, mm -hmm. um, they they have a lot in common. Right. They are both two mothers that will do ultimately whatever it takes to protect their child. And so no one knows that better than Jones, right? right? Like we're on this whole journey because that is this mothers don't give up on their on family on their children. Right. Um, but now that you know, I mean, you had that sort of parallel between the two characters. But now we know that when Jones says, you know, you made what family we have into fools, it is a biological family <laughs> in addition to like the right. found family. Um, so how did you approach sort of this um, Cassie? You know, this is an episode where Cassie is, I feel like, claiming that mantle of motherhood and mm -hmm. I'm going to fight for my son and it's the same episode where Jones is, you know, it's the ultimate betrayal. And I'm sure she can understand the motivation. But 
that motivation is leading to her, like the betrayal of her team. Right. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it, again, it's just, it, it becomes about building conflict into a point where you see both points of view. Um, you know, that these are, Jones knows what it means to break all the rules and, and fight for your children, no matter what the consequences are, no matter who you have to lie to or murder or, um, and so, but at the same time, in in this particular instance, the same thing, the same instinct that drove Jones to launch this entire mission, um, and that 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 motherly instinct of of protecting her children, is now the very same instinct at which Jones finds herself at odds. Right? You know that that you know she knows. That both that that in that scene in which Cassie leaps over the table and grabs the splinter vest and splinters away, both of those characters know what the other one is capable of in this it, 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 in in the sense of of mother protecting their children. Um, and so both of those characters know the impasse that they're at, um, but they also fundamentally understand why they're there. Um, that and so it's just this great drama to build where the thing that in this little mini arc of of fractured team splinter of jones hunting cassie and cole um the same thing motivates them you know what i mean that and and they both have a perfect understanding of why the other is coming after or why the other is doing what they're doing um which is just such which is just such fun to to play with you know because jones yes she considers this a betrayal and she is betrayed because in some ways Cassie's become family to her. Um, but she also understands on some level that what Cassie is doing um, is kind of the same thing that she's doing, or rather she comes to understand that um, because I, I genuinely don't think at this point Jones has quite wrapped her head around where Cassie and Cole stand on the witness being their son. She just knows they didn't tell anybody. Um, and she just sees it as a betrayal of trust. But over the course of those next couple episodes, um, it, it, it really is about, you know, two parents sort of racing toward a goal. Um, but it's but and both driven by the same instinctual thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just such rich drama. Yeah. Now, the thing uh, and this kind of shifts from um the conversation, the earlier conversation between Cassie and Jones, the favor that Cassie's asking of right. her um, to go see her mother, mm-hmm. which is, uh, Jones says, it's oh, it's the ever-present temptation, right, right, of this machine, this the personal wish fulfillment, right, the the moment that you that you let go by, and now you have that hindsight, and you have this mechanism that can enable you to get a do-over, right. Um, you know, as, as Jones says that, it makes you think, you know, God, she's had this machine this whole time and has never used it to go back and see, like, little Hannah, right, right before she died. None of these characters have ever used it for other than, I guess, Jennifer getting her baby tortoise <laughs> um, for personal reasons. What, where did the idea come from? To give Cassie this moment with her mother? And of course, it ends up being so, you know, integral to, to the decision she makes to fight for her son. But where, how did you all kind of come up with this? Because we haven't seen any characters really get to do this and use the machine for this purpose before. Right. Um, it, I mean, it was really the, the, it was really the, 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 the idea of you learn, 
you learn how to be a parent from your parents, right? And and Cassie realizing that she is a mother um, has brought to mind her own mother, right? Which is, that's just a natural connection. Um, but knowing what her mother is good at, knowing what her mother specializes in, um, and, and knowing that this document, this complex document that they've come across um, is something that can only be translated by someone like her mother. It's the perfect storm of ingredients for her to want to go back and get that point of view um, on this thing that she's struggling with and try to put some closure to because she has let Cole go. You know what I mean? She didn't stop Cole from going. So as much as she might be, as much as she might disagree or think she disagrees with Cole's position, um, she's kind of co-signing it by her silence and um, by her, or by her inaction rather. And she's struggling with this question of, you know, are we right to do this? Um, I don't think we are, but maybe, maybe we are. And I need some definitive answer here. And hopefully I can find somebody who will tell me he's a monster and I can just say, okay, that was his nature. Um, or I will find someone to tell me that he is shapeable by nurture. Um, and then I will know for certain that we are doing the wrong thing. And in thinking about her mother, this just becomes the most logical thing to do um, is to find comfort in, in your parents and realizing that you have this time machine that can let you do that. Um, it, it was just for us in the room. It was, yeah, well, I mean, Cassie's going to go get her, her, her motherly instinct from the one woman she never had closure with. Um, and, and we can build, we can build this in as a, not just a plot moment for Cassie. We can, it becomes a character moment for Cassie. It becomes, it becomes healing and cleansing for her. Um, and so, yeah, it just made complete and utter sense. Um, to tell this story in this episode. I, there's so many. Ma- I mean, I I rewatched it this morning and it makes me cry every single time. <laughs> <laughs> These scenes with her mother. And I, um, but there's so many layers to it. Um, as as a, you know, as like somebody with parents, as a parent, that the idea that you could sit down with your parent as contemporaries Mm -hmm. um something that's always like you know whether it's uh marty mcfly with his father and back to the future i mean it made me cry in avengers (laughs) endgame right tony stark talking to howard stark Mm -hmm. like right before he's about to be a father right like it's something that only time travel stories can give you right um but also watching i don't i don't want to speak for beep but like for me watching a brilliant doctor marvel at her brilliant psychologist mm-hmm. mother right and and kind of the awe she's looking at at her mother is not i don't know at least as a woman is not something you always get to see um right in entertainment um and so you just have that like that first layer of mm-hmm. that it'd be wish fulfillment for all of us right like what what would 42 year old me if i sat down and talked to 42 year old version of my mom right yeah, she doesn't understand, mm-hmm. you know, or did not understand at 11 or 12 before she lost her mom, like who her mom really was as a person and how well respected she was and how good mm-hmm. she was at her job. And, you know, that that they essentially would have been like colleagues on such a high level of performance. Right. And to find out that she is in many ways so much like her mother, 
you know that that she that she grew up to a, a similar to set a similar standard in her own career and her own professional pursuits and um yeah it's a deeply it 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 was this these scenes um are certainly some of the 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 most meaningful scenes to me that I wrote throughout the show um my mother from the age of 7 to uh, even as long as is just about five or six years ago has been battling cancer off and on. And so I, at several points throughout my life have had to, uh, fortunately have not had to experience, but certainly had to consider, um, what it would be like losing my, my mother. Right. And, 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 uh, I had to consider that at a very young age, you know, at, at, at seven or eight years old, um, being told that your mother may not be around much longer, um, certainly, shapes you in in many ways and so looking back on these scenes um it it was this opportunity to put a lot of those thoughts um into this sort of heightened context um and 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 to to create this sort of wish fulfillment scene of of how can i go back without identifying who i am necessarily but say goodbye and learn from and get to know in one interaction um, this this person that I was too too young to fully appreciate when I lost them, you know. And so it was. These scenes were deeply deeply um, moving for me to write, and 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 I think not just um, Amanda, but but Kristen um, just acted the hell out of them. Um, you know, yeah. th- there are. You know, there was there was like not a dry eye on the crew. You know, when we were when we were filming these scenes, and um, and and they did multiple versions of them in diff- to different tones of sentiment. Um, and so this is just one. What you see is just one sort of one version of that puzzle. But you could put together probably a, a puzzle that's much more that's a, that's maybe much more emotional and and sentimental. Um, so I mean, those those two actors just just crushed these scenes. Yeah, it's incredibly moving. Um, yeah. And I think, and I'm so sorry, oh, um, yeah. but I think, you know, like so many of the emotional beats in the show, obviously you have the level of the insanity of the story mm-hmm. of what Cassie's talking to her mother about. But at its core, it's something that anyone watching can relate to. Right. You know, it's universal. Yeah. Um, losing a parent, wondering what your parent was at, at the point in life that you are. Um, the other the, the other added layer um, that I think is so beautiful about this scene is that obviously um, Dr. the psychologist, Dr. Rayleigh, has professional expertise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it is her appreciation and love of art mm-hmm. th- that – you know, she's, you know, she's the other grandmother. She's Ethan's other grandmother. Um, Mm -hmm. And she, through her grandson's art, Mm -hmm. is able to understand this man that she will never know. And that that plays such an important part in, in Cassie's decision to save him Mm -hmm. and, and ultimately in saving him, both his soul, both him physically, all of it. Um, is really beautiful and, and kind of actually raises a little bit of a, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but like 
obviously Sebastian taught Ethan, but is Ethan's love of art? Is that is that in nature, right? Does that come from Cassie's mom, right? Like, so yeah, there's mean, so much to unpack there. Uh, that's certainly an interesting way to, to think about it. And I, I've never really thought about it that way. I mean, I think the way, the thing I always thought about the, this scene was that Cassie's, her mother's love and appreciation of art and literature was the sort of secret ingredient that made her diagnosis of Ethan sufficiently personal to make Cassie act. Um, so that, so that, you know, Cassie could not, Cassie could never have taken that document to just any psychologist and gotten the same result. Um, that, that her mother did have a secret ingredient, um, to understanding, uh, why, why this boy, who this boy really was or could be. Um, and, 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 so that not only is going to see her mother meaningful on a personal level, it it's very specific. And her mother gives, gives her this gift that really kind of only she can give her this one, this very unique perspective. Um, and, and that allows her to make this incredible decision at the end of the episode. Um, so we have never gotten, um, I mean, I guess you can go on the Project Splinter website and see a bunch of photos of the Word of the Witness. Mm-hmm. Um, you have this quote that just knocks you on your ass from Dickinson. Forever <laughs> is composed entirely of nows, mm-hmm. and that can cut either way. That can be about <laughs> seizing the now as the last um, sort of message of the show or the Red Forest. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you, there, it seems like there's a lot of other... Um, literary easter eggs there you like you mentioned mm-hmm. lake and thoreau and t.s Eliot and shakespeare so that that's all is that all on there and who like how did this i i feel like we've focused a lot on the on the dates and trying right. to find clues on the word of the witness but it's a work of art in and of itself and mm-hmm. there seems like there's a lot of literary easter eggs in there do you where did that come from and is that something you all thought through or um, beyond yeah. just this episode there were there were a lot on there already uh you know uh, tv magic allows us to add a few here and there um for our, <laughs> for our own purposes so um i don't think forever is composed entirely of nows was was on there originally it kind of got added for the sake of this episode but um a, a lot of there were a lot of of sort of temporal and literary references on there already because you know, we knew this was a kind of self-portrait of a person. We, I mean, we knew that from the moment, the first moment we introduced it. And so we, we wanted it to be filled not just with sort of clues and nuggets of, um, of plot, um, but also of, of character. Uh, and so we kind of laid a baseline down that by virtue of not, you know, having too many close-ups of the thing, we could, we could kind of evolve and, and add to um, so that the audience could learn more about it as we learned more about where our story was going in the room. Um, but it was, it, it was always intended to be a, um, as much a function of character as of story. Uh, well, much like the whole show, right? So that it, it's not just a document of clues. Um, it's, a, it's a suggestion of who this, this, this person was. Got it. Are there any other ones that you would suggest we go down a rabbit hole on? <laughs> um, you know, we love to go down rabbit holes. No, I mean, I mean, I think you've gone 
you, you've gone down so many rabbit. I mean, like, I, I feel like you've, you've made some as well. What? Like, no. You've dug some rabbit holes that I think even we have, we have, we're not mindful of, but, um, <laughs> no, I, I, for the purposes of this episode, I think the ones that are called out are the ones that are most, are most meaningful to, to Cassie and her mother. All right. Cause we can bring professor Aaron back. We can go there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we can do Blake. Um, <laughs> all right. So, um, the big sort of emotional crescendo is this, um, oh man, they act the heck out of it. This hug between <laughs> Cassie and her mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what her mother says, never give up on family. You fight win or lose. It's what mothers do. Right. Um, and gosh, that is, it's not just, I feel like that line now, it's not just ca- about Cassie and Ethan. It's mm-hmm. like what this found family does through the end. Right. I mean, it's that, then that's all the show is about is about people fighting for each other. Um, and, and fighting for, for a greater good beyond their own. And I think, um, uh, and I, and I think, but I think nobody, I think nobody does that as, as instinctually and as fiercely as, as mothers do. Um, and I, and I, and I think that this was uh, for a lot of us, kind of a love letter to our own mothers. Um, and, and that acknowledgement that, um, that, that, that being, that being, that being a mother, there is a quality of motherhood, um, that arms mothers to be fierce fighters. Um, and, and that, that, that her mother acknowledges this to her, um, and, and, kind of says to her in a weird way you know you you have to take the the reins here and you have to um you almost more than anybody almost more than cole have to fight um for the soul of your child uh i think is the thing coupled with the the unlocking of this new memory that she's experiencing just catapults her um back uh back to the 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 facility with this intention that is then interrupted by her scene with jones yeah, the other mother. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, this, I mean, we, obviously, we have a lot of women on this podcast. And so we're often talking about the different ways that this is a very feminist show. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, like, as a mother, that, that I just want to, like, fist pump. Like, you know, <laughs> but, but like that acknowledgement that that can make you as powerful a woman as anything else, right? Mm-hmm. In, between two women that are professionals, right? And so... It's just really like it's something that definitely hits home again in that kind of universal way. Yeah. Um, and this was, this was it, one of those. This was one of those sequences where I mean, it's interesting. It, it's interesting what what the amount of of praise we get on the show um, for, and I, which I appreciate about for for being a feminist show that that was never probably until season three we were never conscious conscious of that. Um, we 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 had started there had started to be articles that were written about our female characters in around about season two and in the interim between two and three. And when we came back into three, it actually, um, it actually took us a minute. It threw us off a little bit um, because suddenly we were conscious of this, of this thing that we supposedly were, you know, of, of this quality that we had in terms of how we portrayed our female characters. Um, and it and and in suddenly in being conscious of it, something that we were kind of unconsciously doing, which is really just treating our female characters like any character, um, and making decisions from a place of character, not gender, um, and just trying to avoid archetypes, not for any specifically feminist or progressive reason, but just 
in the service of what creates the best character, um, what creates the best, smartest, most capable version of any character, whether it's male or female. And suddenly we come into this, this season three um, with a little bit of praise for how we've done that. Uh, and suddenly you start strangely second guessing a lot of your decisions. You start saying, well, can we, can we do this with Cassie without, you know, taking away some of her agency, but in doing that, are we also then giving her a solution to her own problems? And we eventually had to throw all of those considerations out and say, you know what, we're just, we're just going to continue to tell the story we've already, we've always told. But this was one of those rare moments where we really did say, you know what, we, we do want to celebrate the, this uh, Cassie's gender. We want to celebrate specifically the qualities of motherhood um, that make women in a way that men, I don't think can be or, or quite could ever truly understand so exceptional and so heroic and not in any sort of broadly painted way, but in the sense of the way that we all look up to our mothers as writers in the writer's room, as fucking extraordinary human beings who fought for us and championed for us our entire lives in a way that is fundamentally different than our fathers ever did or ever could. Um, and so this was a, finally a conscious, a conscious moment of celebrating um, womanhood and motherhood um, very specifically to that, to that end. Yeah. Sorry, that was a super have... long answer. Sorry. No, I'm so in. No, I, and I can see that how all of a sudden you're like looking over your shoulder, like, wait, but wait. <laughs> so, no, I mean, but you really yeah. do. You get, you get to the beginning of three where, you know, Cassie is kind of, she's a princess in a, in a tower, right. And in, in, in need mm-hmm. of saving. And you start to ask yourself these questions of, are we undoing good work that we've done? Or are we simply setting up a story that's going to allow her uh, more empowerment later um, and and going to pay dividends later. And, and eventually you have to set that aside and say, what's right for the story? And as long as we treat these characters as, uh, you know, genuinely intelligent, emotional beings, um, we'll, we'll, we will more often than not err on the right side of that equation. You know, I mean, I, I studied improv for a long time just as a hobby and an interest. And there's a great, you know, there's a great line of just just play to the height of your intelligence. And um, that was always our thought, which is if we just play these characters, regardless of their gender, to the height of their intelligence um, and play toward the drama and toward um, advancing character and plot in equal measure, we will we will generally um, err on the on the proper side. Yeah. Um, if we can shift to um, what we see, which in in some ways there's a parallel. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got this divide, obviously, between Project Splinter that comes down to Ethan um, and Cassie and eventually Cole's like love for their son. But on the other side, you have Team <laughs> Guardians <laughs> and Magdalena and Sebastian <laughs> are having sort of a similar um, there's a there's a nurture nature mm-hmm. free choice uh, who loves the man who loves the boy. Um, and it's kind of wonderful because you know we've seen sebastian Mm -hmm. but um in the same episode that we see um cassie's mother really analyzing the word of the witness i feel like this is the first episode where we really meet sebastian and he of course is the person who's going to hand him the quill and tell him to draw it um Mm -hmm. 
that we'll see in a few episodes. So talk to us about, because this is an episode where, I mean, we've obviously, well, Magdalena has probably haunted our nightmares. Um, <laughs> we've met her before, um, but this, um, we get to meet Sebastian. And even though he's only with us um, really for two episodes, um, he's obviously really important to Ethan. And he's one of the many sort of adopted parents that mm-hmm. are throughout the series. Yeah, I mean, we, we we wanted a fundamental foil among the Guardians for for Magdalena. You know, we, we wanted, you know, we wanted to, this mirror, right? We wanted to create this sort of mirroring of the, the nature-nurture question on either side of the line. And, you know, Magdalena, who is devout um, in her belief and is devout in her job and knows what she's meant to do, um, and then, you know, then you have who, who does not look at the boy as a human being. I mean, I, I, I do not think that I think the the only degree to which Magdalena loves or cares for that child is the degree to which he will grow up to be the icon that she truly loves. Um, I don't think she has genuine love for this boy. Um, I think she sees him as an object that she's meant to protect, who will then one day become something more meaningful to her. But for right now, she doesn't have the luxury of looking at him as an emotional being. She's looking at him as something that she has to protect and something that she has to um, shove ideas into his head and uh, just just kind of follow her orders from the version of that man, from the version of that boy will eventually become a man that she will follow and adore. Whereas Sebastian is cannot help but but create and form a bond with this child as his tutor um, and, and see that this child has very different um, leanings than maybe he expected, has, is expressing very different things, is not yet the witness. Um, and so has these doubts and these questions about well, if he's not yet the witness, does that mean he's not he could be something else? Um, and just feels like you know, if if he's meant to be the witness, then he will be. Um, and I and I all I can do is is raise him um, as I feel uh, any any tutor would 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 raise and teach their, their their subject. So it's it's a cool fundamental. You know, you're asking the same question on on both sides of the the story. Yeah, there is. Um... I mean, Hannah Waddingham is so good, and they're oh, so, so good. But there's a scene. I mean, whether she is um, grabbing Sebastian's face, and it's like she's so. <laughs> it's so interesting as a woman watching that, like the woman being the one that's like physically threatening this younger man. That is so. Um, there's a lot about Magdalena, whether it was in uh, the season premiere and this episode, that just kind of. Uh, leaves you in a really uncomfortable place. Um, but also, like, when she's looking down at Ethan and she's, like, my special boy, and there's, like, this mm-hmm. tension or, like, this kind of, oh, it just is so... <laughs> Do you guys know what I'm saying? I can't even articulate it. It makes me feel so deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> well, she's 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 a mother who... who she's, she's a woman who's been put in this role of mother who... Has uh-huh. none of the instincts mm-hmm. or none of the understanding of what being a mother mm-hmm. is, you know. So when she's talking to Ethan, she's not really talking to Ethan like a human being, you know. She's talking to Ethan like, you know, a, a god or an object that needs to be served, um, and kind of not realizing that that in some ways 
similar to Olivia, really, she's digging her own grave, right? Like her inability to um, her inability to connect emotionally um, and, and in, in service to just doing the job that she's been tasked with doing um, is the thing that ultimately will 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 undo the situation. Um, and Hannah, like, Hannah is just so remarkably good at playing this character and making you hate her. But um, also being afraid to hate her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and is so, is so good in this episode. Um, which is funny because she is the absolute loveliest human being. I mean, I, I, Hannah and I have become friends um, since this episode and, and anytime she's in LA, we'll get together and uh, you know, her and myself and, and, and Todd Stashwick. And um, she is just, I have such a crush on her. <laughs> she is just, she is, such a beautiful human being and she's so funny. Uh, and then, and then all of a sudden she just, she just, you know, turns it on and she becomes this, this person that you're like terrified of. She's amazing. She's yeah. Great. Well, I mean, so we should probably, do, I, there's some, I, I want to, it probably makes sense to um, go straight to, you get to write the, the moment we've been waiting for since you force fed Cassie <laughs> in the season premiere, but there are two really great, um, Easter eggs in the draw, like one of Ethan's drawings of Cole with the gun mm-hmm. is the freaking code to delete him. Like, like surrounding <laughs> his face. It makes me want to like throw right. the remote now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then also her, I mean, hearing Magdalena say, someday when you return to Titan and you're like, dot, 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 you guys are all going down. <laughs> She's gonna right. <laughs> so let's go to the Magdalena and Cassie face-off. Um that okay. we have oh man. Um particularly <laughs> as a woman, um, you know, when we talked about that episode, there's something that is um particularly sinister to have a female face of sort of this um removal of agency for Cassie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something Hannah Waddingham has played also in Game of Thrones. Um, so she's, um, mm-hmm. so talk to us about how you guys were like, okay, we have set her up as someone that the audience hates. <laughs> now we're sending her off. How do we, how do we do that? The It's funny. Cause I mean, we, we, for as I think um, organic and obvious, is it a way to kill her and, and send her off as it feels it, it took us a minute to get there. Um, because the the splinter suits, the immolation function on the splinter suit was kind of a late game addition. Um, it, it it was this function that we 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 had not originally conceived the splinter suits as having them. And what we realized, I think it was, I forget, it might have been, it might actually just have been the previous episode to this. That um, and then we wrote backwards into into the first couple was if they keep going back. Um, there's, wouldn't there be, the, the, and changing the past, what does that mean for the one who went back? And then it became about, well, would they just disappear or would there be a double? Or if they disappeared, would that just seem corny? Um, because you, then you get into loop questions about like, well, then if they disappeared, did they ever do it in the first place? And so how did we get here? And then, so we just, we came about with this solution of, well, wouldn't the cultiest thing in the world be that that the remainder has to delete itself or his or herself and um, and has to continually knowingly make the sacrifice? And then we built immolation into the suit, um, and which I think we I, I want to say, if I'm remembering correctly, 
we made that decision in nature in the previous episode and then wrote that back into the earlier scripts um, as a function of, of the suit. I may be misremembering that, but I believe that's true. And once we had that, then we knew how she died. You know what I mean? Like, then once you know that, you're like, oh, you just got to set this bitch on fire. And, um, and, and, and to have Cassie be able to just hit the suit um, and, and hit that button and have it be so rewarding. Uh, it was, it was awesome. I mean, it was just, it was every, it was every element coming together to, 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 to kill one of our, one of our villains who I think made a huge impression in, in re- relatively few episodes. Yeah. How satisfying um, was that for Cassie? Ugh. I know. So you good. finally got to say, mind yourself back to her. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing that I think is so, there's um really vivid language. <laughs> um, the moment he pushed your pushed himself from your body, like as I'm just like it, crawling into the fetal position as I say that. Like, you know, <laughs> oh, it's just such like you know, and the way she always calls Cassie the vessel. But what's so phenomenal is that, like, that's obviously what Magdalena believes, and her whole purpose is so much in wrapped mm-hmm. up in shaping the child. But the one who's actually shaping him is Sebastian, um, because right. of love, which is something she obviously mm-hmm. doesn't understand. So it's sort of um, doubly rewarding. Um, not only do we get to see her, you know, basically. Uh, blow up but she also you know that purpose that she like held on to so it's you're like but that's not even that's not even true like right Right. um and it's and it's an example of her only humanizing the child when it works to antagonize um cassie like she she's constantly referring to him as a kind of a means to an end and, and 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 not considering Ethan's humanity, but it's only when she's trying to defeat Cassie that she, she really talks about him as a, as a, as a child that left the mother's bot, you know, like, and, and she just, she uses humanity as a weapon, um, which just seemed distinctly. Yeah. I mean, there's a subtle, um, the fact that she calls him, you know, when they're in a panic because they realize that uh, team splinter is, possibly there and coming for them and she tells the other guardian Mm -hmm. um go protect or whatever the witness and you realize that Mm -hmm. ethan doesn't even have a name other than that title i mean that says it all what's funny is then that that i don't i'm I'm sure if you talked to uh to hannah she would tell you this no problem but um she hated some of that dialogue at the end i mean that some of the dialogue in the fight with cassie when she says, you know, do you feel him gone like a phantom limb? Um, which, like, she was just like, oh, she's like, it's just so awkward to say. And and she's just so, she's so evil. <laughs> and Terry and I were like, yeah, you're a Bond villain. You know what I mean? Like, you get to be. And 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 eventually she 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 came around and had a ton of fun with it. But, you know, even, even Hannah was uncomfortable with how evil Magdalena was, which, you know, is saying. Yeah, I mean, I. You guys have a lot of very complicated, um, layered, quote unquote, I I don't even like to call them villains, antagonists, right? Like, obviously, Mm -hmm. Olivia, Shaw. But, you know, it's also a cult. 
<laughs> you know? And mm-hmm. so I think getting to see someone that is as fanatical as Magdalena, there's a place for that, right? Even if as 100%. much as we enjoy how layered everybody else is, um, so- sometimes it's fun just to fist pump to the bad guy going down. <laughs> so, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if, if this were a video game, like Magdalena is like a mid-level boss, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> right. she's, She's just the the one you put in there and you really just want to see yeah. her killed, you know, like, and you want to root against her. You don't need to know that much about her and, and she can just be a bad yeah. guy. Um, and she played it. She played it so well. And she made she made Magdalena, I think, more than what was on the page. And um, I think that's really a testament to how wonderful of, of, of an actor and a human being that Hannah is. So. Yeah. So. All right. Um, before we get to the big uh, Cole and Ethan moment. Mm-hmm. Particularly now that we know how this season ends, right. um, Jennifer, the moment between Jennifer and Ethan, mm-hmm. it is, I was trying to think back because mythology, like mythology wise, is this the first time we've ever seen two primaries be face to face? I want to say yes. And, and getting uh, to see, like, yes. getting to, like, we've known that they are aware of one another, even going all the way back to, like, Tommy in season two. Um, mm-hmm. But this is, like, we get to watch their superpower and that their minds mm-hmm. are talking to one another. Even, <laughs> like, we're in their heads and they are having this conversation, in, even though that's not what's actually taking place in the room. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, mythology-wise and wondering about the symbols – um, which obviously are, it's the code to delete Cole. Um, now we know. Uh, so there's like that mythology layer to it, but then also sort of that connection between Ethan and Jennifer. Like in some ways, they both were these misunderstood children for many reasons, but in part because of their primariness um, and and that mm-hmm. bond that they're going to have where Ethan's going to repeat, but one day you will be the best of us all. Um, mm-hmm. So this is an important episode setting that up. So we'd just love to hear about sort of your thoughts about this Ethan Jennifer relationship. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, it's really just about getting the two. I mean, it's like a boxing match, right? It's like you want, it's like the, the you get the two top rated boxers in the ring together finally. Um, and what they, what they, <laughs> what they realize is that they, 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 like each other you know um and 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 that that you know i think even this is even a scene in which jennifer wasn't quite expecting to find someone so human um and 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 getting the validation that that it's it's actually gonna be her um that 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 may be the key to all of this in in a way that that even um you know, beyond even Ethan and beyond even the witness. Um, and then that sentiment that Cole echoes back to her in the finale, that you were the best mm-hmm. of us all, um, you know, uh, and, and, and that really, I think is in a lot of ways, I, I keep thinking is the thing that Ethan was referencing. He was referencing what he knew Cole would one day tell Jennifer. Um, but that, and, and, and that scene also came a little bit from us in the room, not quite knowing yet, at the top of season four, how much we were going to play. There was an intention for a while that was then, uh, we, we went in a different direction, but there was an intention to have Jennifer and Ethan kind of on, a, on some adventures um, at the top of four that, that, that you would do a couple of episodes um, of Jennifer and Ethan through time. Um, 
and and really build that relationship. And we we took the story in a different direction. But at the time, we were still noodling that. So we were just very interested in putting these two characters together and seeing what would happen. Um, and then just kind of, you know, just like throwing two lit sticks of dynamite at each other and then seeing, you know, what happens. And then what happens is time freezes. And they they have a conversation in which Ethan kind of tells Jennifer, look, this is this may be OK. And you may be a big part of making it that way um, and giving Jennifer... Uh, as much hope um, as she hoped that he would. It's so crazy that we've already seen all the symbols. We have the two of them sitting there, you know, she's like, what does it mean? And he's like, I don't know. (laughs) And then we don't find out for another like 12 episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's, by the way, it's to delete your dad and her best friend. (laughs) Ah! Um, All right. So yeah, I mean, it's funny because I I think we were saying actually on the last pod that like everything about Ethan and Jennifer together um, and maybe just the scenes with James Callis, um, you just want more, right? I mean, that's the thing. Oh my yeah. God, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the beauty of masks, right? I mean, like, uh, uh that episode, uh, with him and Eliza is just, you're just like, I would watch this mm-hmm. show, you know, like, give me a show about this guy. I mean, he's just so interesting and captivating and then he meets the love of his life and I would watch, I would watch episodes. With Absolutely. Him, you know, and, and. Um, and you only get, you know, 45 minutes and, and, and what those two actors are able to accomplish in that small span of time, these two people that you've never met before. Uh, and it's just, you're immediately invested. Yeah. I remember when that episode ended and my husband was like, did we just spend an entire episode at the end of season three with two characters we never met? And I love them. And, you know, like, and Mm -hmm. not, uh, right? Like, because that, you have a penultimate episode in that maybe you're like, oh, no, I want to get back to, like, the characters I love. But you just fell in love with them. And I'm like, I would watch the BBC period drama of Eliza and Ethan. Like, (laughs) yeah. Masks was was by far one of my favorite episodes to work on. I mean, it it was that, and, and Sean... Did such a good job with that script, and and I was very blessed to be able to go in and work on parts of it, and um and and it was it 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 came out so beautifully, and this episode I think really sets it up in such a meaningful way because if you don't have this, if you don't know the the boy at the center of the man, that episode works mm-hmm. less, you know, um and so it, this is yeah this whole little arc is just one of my favorites of the show so that takes us to um the big moment when cole sees ethan and uh it's it's probably one of like my favorite moments in the whole series um Mm -hmm. not and and for different reasons from different like there's this there's cole i I would like to break it down sort of both characters perspective because for Mm -hmm. cole it is this as you were saying before, like the hopeful upswing, like we've hit bottom with Cole. He's making a different choice and that's going to propel him for the rest of the series. Um, in, in some ways, um, to, to choose not to kill him. Um, but then for Ethan, it is this, like ultimately his father chooses not to shoot him, right? N- n- mm-hmm. Names him, gives him his name, which that man carried forward. I'm trying to remember in Thief if he introduces himself as Ethan, but it's, it is like, even if this is the only one of only two interactions he's ever had with his father, he, uh, he adopts that name, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. yep. But it's also one of only two times until we get to the series season finale that Ethan ever interacted with his father. And one was to have a gun at his head. The other is seeing his father at another real low point um, in Thief. Mm-hmm. So if yep. you could just kind of break down this scene, it's really, really important, but it's different for both of the characters, I think. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the question, it's funny, the question that I always had about the scene, and I like that there's not an answer to it. Um, we, we asked each other this in the room and, um, we kind of decided that it was better unanswered than answered was, does Ethan know how this moment is going to end? Um, he's been drawing this moment for quite some time, which means he knows about it. He's having visions of his father standing over him with a gun. Um, and does this boy know what happens next? And um, I choose to believe that he doesn't, that, that, He's been living in fear of this image that lived in his head for quite some time. And that when the moment comes, he is just as curious whether Cole is going to pull the trigger as, any, as Cole is. Um, and and so it's it becomes a moment of two characters meeting their antagonists, right? Like this, this man that he has believed for years is going to come to him and hold a gun on him has finally arrived. And from Cole, it's this boy that he knows will grow up and, and do so much damage is finally in front of him. And neither of them knows what happens next um, until they go from knowing each other as abstracts to, to knowing each other as human beings. And the only way you can know a human being without talking to them is to look them in the eye. And so Jennifer's advice and, and, and Ethan has to look his father in the eye without the filter of his kind of third inner eye, right? Like it, it, it's about, two people finally being in proximity enough to make uh, a human connection. Um, so it is strangely the same scene from either side, um, because I don't think at this point that Ethan has any particular agenda, right? He doesn't, he doesn't develop that until thief. And so all he knows is he has this ability and this ability is telling that someone's going to come for him one day. Um, and that, and that that person's going to threaten his life. And he's probably lived in some level of terror about that for quite some time. Um, and and so to have these two characters meet and lock eyes and in that moment kind of understand the other doesn't mean the harm they think they've meant for so long. Um, and the realization that nurture is possible, uh, you know, I think is is it, it, it's it's so simple and so complex at the same mm-hmm. time. And I think the way that we and the actors played it of just kind of relative silence and connection and him giving him the name as kind of the olive branch that's extended um, and then accepted uh, is it's just it's a very simple but yet incredibly complex scene. Yeah, I mean, you're watching. I feel like you watch uh, Cole's whole journey like play out on Aaron Stanford's face without any dialogue mm-hmm. um but also there's a part of it that just like it's this little the actor that you had played like it's a little boy like with a gun to, right i yeah. mean there's a level mm-hmm. of horror that you are forced to be confronted with even when you were talking about sort of that moral dilemma at the top of the episode as an abstract you know right. you make us sit with it for a minute and you're like oh like yeah. oh my god please don't do this right even though in the abstract it's one for seven billion. Um, yeah. Right. Now, um, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but in season one, that's how Matthew Cole knew 
that this grown up man was his son. He said, like, I just looked in his mm-hmm. eyes. So it's this great, um, you know, just kind of like, that's how you can really not only like measure yeah. a person, but that like a father looking at his son. Um, and I think that there's a mirror of that in Cassie's mother looking at Cassie and saying, I feel like I know mm-hmm. you. Um, I mean, I, I'm not convinced that on some level, Cassie's mother doesn't know who Cassie is. Yeah. Um, when, when, when she leaves and she certainly couldn't know how that would be possible or, or she probably rationalized it away five minutes later, but I'm, I'm fairly certain that, that, that for a moment, Cassie's mother was like, I feel like I'm talking to my daughter. Um, and yeah, I mean, so it's, it's just a piece of the episode and it's a, it's a theory of the show, you know, that, that kind of people recognize each other in, in, in the most basic and fundamental way, which is just by, by looking. It was so devastating to hear, you know, Cassie's mother explain that she had known that all along. And I have to say, I mean, knowing, you know, that she was going to die all along. I I have to say, this is one of my favorite nosebleeds. Mm. It's so sweet. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's just giving, giving Cassie that moment, you know, uh, was, was just so, was just so powerful. And, and, um, the, the story from that, that, uh, that episode that I, I remember, um, is that the little girl that we got to play young Cassie in a very brief flashback, um, was, uh, she's super sweet and it was really lovely. And we, we rolled a couple of takes and they just didn't, they weren't feeling right. And, um, we weren't kind of getting the emotion from, from that we wanted from the scene. And, so, you know, I had gone up to the director and I said, you know what, I'd like to try because Kristen, who played um, Cassie's mother, is is a mother herself. And I said, why don't we just tell them, I, like, lie to the actors. I'm like, just tell them you cut, but keep rolling. Um, and then I went up to Kristen and I was like, talk to her like you would your daughter. Like, can you just sit there and talk to her for a little while and get her comfortable? And, you know, uh, and, and a lot of the shots that you see in that episode are kind of genuine expressions of, of Kristen as a mom, you know, like uh, that they didn't even know we were getting, we were just rolling on Mm. it. Um, And, and and it's when you go from acting to actually being a mom that the truth comes there, you know, that, that you get, that you got it. And it was just this lovely little Testament to, to motherhood in general. It was just really great. That's so great. Um, Yeah. uh, If that, so this scene with Ethan, obviously Deacon comes in the room um, and mm-hmm. you have this moment of Cole claiming Ethan, he's my son. And you as the right. audience know what it has taken for Cole to get there. Um, but it's also a huge like WTF moment for Deacon. Like, are you kidding me? (laughs) So, and then the poor guy, you know, the woman he was doing pull-ups in prison to go save a few episodes ago shoots him. Like, like two, three times? It's pretty rough. (laughs) Um, So, I find it, like, remarkable the way this episode ends that you feel, on the one hand, Hannah and Deacon have been like the physical trauma to their bodies, whether being cut right. um, by Hockley or Cassie shooting Deacon. And we see the blood like on the floor, the rags covered with blood. It, it makes me think back to Deacon in that jail jail cell, right? Like all mm-hmm. of it is like this physical trauma on top of the emotional betrayal. 
and you feel like the weight of that of like, oh God, this just this sucks, right? Like there. But on the other hand, I am fist pumping when Cassie and Cole are like, it's ours to fix, it's our family, and they split her right. away. And you're just like, oh my God, I'm of two minds. Like, I feel the betrayal. And on the other hand, I am totally fist pumping, even though they just shot Deacon, right? Like, so. Right. Yeah, it's a heck of a way to end it. Um, it's also kind of, I know, I think when, when Terry Metalis had come on, there was sort of if there had been more episodes, then we would have dwelled in this sort of adventures of Cassie and Cole on their own um, and Deacon yeah. and Jones. So, you know, just, I guess, talk to us sort of about how you guys decided to end this episode and make the make the audience go on that journey of darn it, but also awesome <laughs> going out at the same time. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was all in service to getting where we knew we were going. I mean, we, we knew, we knew we needed to have this end game reveal that the se- the season finale would ultimately kind of play out. And we knew that we needed to make Ethan, uh, uh, in a very short amount of time, a, a flesh and blood character that you really felt for. And, um, and, 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 uh, that, that would play a meaningful part, um, in, uh, that would play a meaningful part in, in Olivia's plan, not just in letting the plan succeed, but in setting up the pieces um, for our people to get away so that they, they could ultimately defeat her in, in season four. So, um, you know, we were coming into seven and, and this particular episode, and we knew that, you know, look, we're going to have, we're going to have one episode of chasey chase, and we're going to have one episode of, of, of we're here. We're going to go, we're going to spend, an hour with these two characters you've never met and, and make you hopefully fall in love with Ethan. And then we're in it. So, you know, we, we really needed the audience to, we, we really needed to tell the audience like, okay, we're in the end game now, at least for this season. And, uh, we're gonna, we're, we're, we're we, we have to make it, uh, a sprint. Um, and, and all of these different interests converging, um, to get where we needed to go in, in 10. So, I mean, it was, it was really about, this was the this was the of uh, the fracture um, that that let us move the pieces around and rearrange the puzzle a little bit, um, knowing where we were going. So. Yeah, and there's um, you know as we said, it's the same director as Lullaby, and so the the mm-hmm. scene, sort of that shot of Jones next to Hannah's at Hannah's bedside. With the sound yeah. of the heart rate monitor, it always makes me think of Jones by Little Hannah's bedside at the beginning 100%. of Lullaby, yeah. you know? And so you're like, God, we're back to, you know, it's 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 the same reason why Cassie and Cole are doing what they're doing. Um, but right. man, this feels like a really tragic loop. And now when you know yeah. that they're all real family, right? Like this is Jones's great grandson, right? That she's sending them all off to mm-hmm. kill. So there's just kind of this added layer of tragedy until they can finally figure this all out. And I think Stephen Stephen is such a brilliant director and is such a lovely human being. Um, but in a lot of ways, I think is one of our one of the directors that gets both the dramatic, like both the drama and the cinema of the show. I mean, he's so visual and, and he does such amazing things with his camera and the pacing of his episodes, but also really understanding the mythology and respecting the characters and milking every moment for the, the, the drama and the character work. Um, he's, I mean, he's to be one of the heroes of the episode. He's, he, he nails these things out of the park. Yeah. Do you have any other, we had, if you have time, we just had a few big picture questions, sort of series as a whole. Yeah, sure, um, so 
Um, obviously, you guys are playing with this nurture versus nature theme a lot, obviously, this season, but it, but it also feels sort of with the series as a whole, with many characters, mm-hmm. Olivia and Deacon. Um, and you wrote, you know, from Enemy to this one to Daughters in season four, mm-hmm. where we get to sort of spend time with Emma and watch that whole tragic cycle continue. <laughs> um is this a theme that like particularly spoke to you or um, I, I guess it's just, it's a thread that runs through a lot of the episodes that you wrote. And, and do you, did you all have, uh, did you guys come out on a writer's room, like with a particular point of view on it, nature versus nurture? I mean, cause there's a lot, it's, it's a thread that runs throughout and you kind of raise a lot of really interesting questions about it. I think, I think nature versus nurture is in, in some ways just an inherent element to the theme of family that the that the the series generally explores um in in that you know it's about the entire show i mean whether it's nature versus nurture uh with children or whether it's nature versus nurture with time itself with choices with um this notion of are things fixed or can they be changed can you really make a difference can you like it 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 is I think in some ways the fundamental theme of, of the show with this push pull between what is set in stone and what is written in clay and how can you, you know, and, 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 and is anything ever truly um, predetermined? Uh, and so there's a lot of, I, and so I think just as much as, as the, the show plays into that back and forth, you have a lot of the characters uh, in these episodes, um, wrestling with those with those same things. I mean, the, I, I'll be honest. The thing that attracted me to daughters in season four was less uh, was less the nature and nurture of it, and more was the opportunity to kind of get to do the sequel to Enemy, <laughs> right? To kind of get to do the reverse Electra Clarice thing that we had done in Enemy with Jones and Olivia, and get to to flip that on its head. But at the same time, you get to play out this this great um, story with with hannah about you know can how can the world change her over over the time that she spends in it and and with emma uh in terms of you know um you know uh, uh, is she has she been in, indoctrinated to a point past saving you know and um and and so it's just great to be able to have this sort of underlying question at the heart of almost every different theme of your show you know between permanence and impermanence and what is kind of faded and what is optional and all that. Yeah. Um, You mentioned, did you, did you say at the top of the recording that Jennifer and Jones were those the two characters that came sort of most naturally for you? I did. Yeah. um, So yeah, Jennifer, my sort of, I guess you'd sort of say that the, the, the things that I really enjoyed doing with the show were were sort of the the, the bigger, broader philosophical passages, and then I really I, I'm a, I'm a big student of fast paced dialogue, um, and and you know I, I grew up uh, I grew up as a theater nerd, and so for me I would read I would read a, a ton of playwrights, and then I became introduced to Sorkin um, and and that sort of style of dialogue, and then. That eventually dovetailed into a lot of my favorite writers like, you know, Tarantino or Shane Black or um, even in more modern senses like Ryan Johnson, um, who really love the musicality and, and rhythms that you can build in, in dialogue. And so 
uh, I somehow became the go-to guy for like monologues and banter. Um, and, and Jennifer was one of the first characters I'd ever written for the show. Um, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, Terry came into my office and was like, we, we kind of have to figure out who Jennifer is. Um, go. And then gave me the freedom to sort of start to invent her voice um, and her personality and then evolve that over the course of, of four seasons um, and everybody, of course, touched it at different points, but um, it was a real it was a real blessing to be able to kind of lean into Jones and Jennifer as much as I did, uh, which was, you know, I mean, when, when I got to tell the Jones story in season four um, with her and her husband was just it was like, you know, just being being allowed to play with the toy I knew how to play with best. And um, it was such a joy to be able to do that. And then, uh, yeah, but th- those two characters are the ones that are closest to my heart and, and probably the ones that I enjoyed writing for um the most now so we have to ask you because we ask everyone who comes on um where do you fall <laughs> on i know this yeah question. yeah so did cassie stop the countdown I, she absolutely did i think um i think the question of whether she did or didn't or would or wouldn't is important but i think if you really listen to the show you know and i think if you really Look, logic aside, I think there's lots of logical reasons and arguments you can make for that she pushed the button. Um, but if you if you listen to the show and you've come to understand the spirit of the show and the intention of the show, and 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 certainly I think if you you know listen to these podcasts and you you start to get a sense of of the writers and the kind of people that we are and the story we were trying to tell, I, I, we we were never aiming for anything cynical. Like we we did really want a genuinely happy ending, um, except for Sean, who was just a twisted human being, <laughs> uh, who continues to advocate for the red force theory. But um, no, I mean, I think it, I, I think it would, to me, it undermines the show if she did push the button, but I think it is important to the theme of the show to present the question of whether she truly did or didn't. Um, because, you know, look, ultimately, at the end of the day, I think what Olivia and 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 the 12 monkeys were fighting for um, was was the permanence of love. Right. Was 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 the most twisted version of holding on to something fleeting, which is what we all want to do. Um, they were just doing it in in the way that drained it of meaning um, that 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 if it doesn't pass and if if all you ever have is one thing forever, then eventually that the, the meaning will fall away. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I think she totally, I think she totally pushed the button. I think she totally saved the day because I think at, at the end of the day, that's the tone and message of the, the series. Um, we agree. Good answer. You might be able to come back. Good answer. Oh, <laughs> uh, we would love, I mean, we would always love to have you come back because you have some phenomenal episodes in season four too. Um, I'm more than happy anytime. I mean, I think there's, I, I love listening to you guys and there's tons of, there's, there's tons of fun stuff coming up. So yeah. anytime you want Thank me back. You. Awesome. Back. Where can people see, um, where, what are your current projects? Where can people listen to your words? <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm writing for nine one one over on Fox mm-hmm. now. Um, so jumped from, you know, character driven cable television to procedural, uh, network. Uh, which has been a kind of interesting adventure, and and we were were our show just premiered uh, 
season three last week. Um, and we're about to do a big kind of cool tsunami hits Los Angeles episode uh, beginning on Monday. Um, so that'll be a lot of fun. I'm hoping people will dig that. And then uh, continuing to develop um, some other projects, uh, working on a, a another show right now um, that'll be an adaptation of a, a movie from the 90 sci another 90 sci-fi movie adaptation with a little bit of the dna of this of 12 monkeys in it so working on that pilot now and we'll see how that goes and then um you know terry and i have uh, some fun stuff that we've been talking about and have been trying to cook up for a while so hopefully one day uh, we'll get some uh some of the team back together to to, to do more stuff for you guys ah that's that's the dream <laughs> Yeah. Do you feel like in works that you guys create, you know, going forward, that it will be remotely possible for you to leave like the DNA of 12 Monkeys behind on your future projects? I don't know, because I think the DNA of 12 Monkeys is very much our DNA. I mean, I think, um, you know, it's about telling it's about telling, you know, big, fun popcorn genre stories, but, you know, leading with character and leading with emotion. And, um, you know, my hope would be that whether it's us as individuals or whether it's some permutation of us coming back together for uh, another show um, that, that we would, we would be able to at least aspire to the same standard um, that we were able to achieve uh, with this. Um, because I think, you know, it really was an extraordinary group of writers and, uh, and I learned so much from, from working with all of them. And um, you know, I, I think, but by the end of that, by the end of that, experience we really had learned how to sing as a chorus and and not as a bunch of individual singers and um i would love to and and hope that someday we could be able to recreate some of that magic um but regardless i think you know in our own projects hopefully you would find bits and pieces of 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 what worked mm -hmm. on monkeys uh shining through there yeah. so. Well, thank you so much. Thanks. So you were super generous with your time. You really, really, I think. No, of yeah. course. I mean, guys, you, you are generous with your time. I mean, this is, a, <laughs> this is a show that we put a lot of love and effort into and to know that people care enough to, you know, do these podcasts and promote these podcasts and, and really dig down as deep as you guys have dug is it means everything to us. And, you know, as much as you support us, we're happy to support you. So uh, anytime. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to coming back and talking about the next one. Oh, good. If any other writers, because um, I mean, as amazing as it is to have the actors on the show and, you know, that all the who played all these characters that are like some of our favorite of all times like ultimately we are obsessed with the writing on this show so if there's any right you know we love to nerd out about this stuff so if you know any other writers that would love to come talk to us about an episode they wrote um please pass that along for sure i will and uh anytime you need me i'm here. awesome thank you so thank much you chris. so much chris all right thank you guys so much Thank you so much to Christopher Monfett for all the time that he spent with us answering some amazing questions about the series and specifically about 307 Nature. We really enjoyed it. Can't wait to have him back. We will be back in a couple weeks with 308 Masks. And until then, we'll see you soon. <laughs>